I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Hey, you guys, Kelly McEvers here. We know it has been a few months since you've heard from Embedded, but the good news is we're coming back. We've been working really hard on a couple of new seasons, and this spring we'll be back with some good stuff. One season will take you to one of the most complicated places in the world and follow families who are trying to get their people out. And the other one, we're going to take a big, long look at one of the most powerful people in America. We are very excited about all this stuff. I promise you'll be hearing more about it soon. And in the meantime, we have another story we've been working on. So keep listening. And thanks so much for sticking with us. We cannot wait to share what we've been working on. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and this is Embedded. And the way we do stories here sometimes starts with one of us getting kind of obsessed. Last year, Tom Dreisbach, one of our producers, got obsessed with a number he'd heard in the news. A shocking new study prompts Puerto Rico's governor to raise the death toll from Hurricane Maria. Officials in Puerto Rico now say nearly 3,000 Nearly 3,000 people actually died within six months of that storm. And when the news about this number came out, it was shocking. Partly that's because the Puerto Rican government had said for months that the death toll from Hurricane Maria was fewer than 100. But also because this study showed that most of these people did not die in the storm. They died because of the massive loss of power after the storm and the failure to get the power turned back on. We were thrown back to last century, to the 1930s. Marta Suarez is a doctor in Puerto Rico, and she says during Maria, the island's healthcare system basically fell apart. If you need to have a surgery and there was no ORs because the ORs could not be kept sterile, then you die from an appendicitis. If your insulin couldn't be refrigerated and went bad in the heat, you died from diabetes. If there was no power for the dialysis machine you needed, you died of kidney failure. All of this happened after Hurricane Maria. And the hardest part, Dr. Suarez says, is that it didn't have to. That's why it's so frustrating for us as physicians to know that someone died and we, in theory, we could have helped them. All of these people could have been helped, but weren't. I mean, the estimate is that 3,000 people died. This is a huge event. And for whatever reason, whether the distance or the language barrier or the history of colonialism, it just felt like the magnitude of what had happened in Puerto Rico was not getting through on the mainland. Like, where were the stories for all of these 3,000 people? Dr. Suarez told me one story that showed all the ways the system fell apart. There's this family. The son was on a ventilator, and he needed electricity to live. And she told me how they went from one place to another, desperately trying to find power to keep their son alive. So we decided our whole show today would be the story of this one family. Because telling that story will help us understand what went wrong after Hurricane Maria and how people are trying to figure out how to do better when the next storm comes.
is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. <laughs> dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Okay, we are back. Here's Tom Dreisbach with the story. It actually took me a while to find this family. Marta Suarez, the doctor we mentioned earlier, remembered their story, but not their name. And when I asked around doctor's groups and the health department, they weren't sure how to reach them. And then one day, my phone rang. The mother had found me. Hola. Her name is Saida Maldonado, and she's resourceful, assertive. She has to be. She spent much of her life taking care of her son, Javier. He was born in 1999 with a rare genetic disorder called Smith-Lemley-Opitz syndrome. And when Saida and I talked through an interpreter, she called Javier a miracle. When Javier was a toddler, one doctor said he only had two more years to live. But that doctor was wrong. So she feels it's a sign from God that he wants to stay on this earth with her. Still, Javier wasn't able to live on his own. He couldn't talk or walk. The only way he was able to breathe was with a ventilator, which pumped air into his lungs through a tube in his throat. Thing is, in Puerto Rico, the electrical grid is pretty unreliable. So the family had to have a backup, a generator, which runs on diesel fuel. And that generator kept Javier alive when the power went out. Then, in September 2017, the family hears that a big storm is coming. At this point, Javier is 18. He, Saida, his father Luis, and his younger sister Angelica are living way up in the mountains in the middle of Puerto Rico. It's this town called Barranquitas. They listen to the news as the storm gets more and more intense. The governor tells people they should prepare to shelter for 72 to 90 hours. Two days before the hurricane is set to make landfall, Saida says she gets a call from Puerto Rico's health department. Even though the family has a generator, the health official says that the best thing for everyone, and especially Javier, is to go to the local emergency room before the storm. That way, if Javier needs medical care, They'll already be there. And if the power goes out, the ER has its own generator. Zaida and her family trust what the health department tells them. So they board up the windows at their house, pack up their cars, and head to the ER. They have a plan, supplies, and a safe place to go. They've done everything right. Then, around 6 a.m. on September 20th, Hurricane Maria makes landfall. 
The wind is as fast as 155 miles per hour. It starts to blow trees into the roads and roofs off of buildings. One part of the island gets almost 40 inches of rain in just two days. That's more rain than fell in any place during Hurricane Katrina. By midday, the entire island, 100%, has lost power. All communication goes down. No landlines, no cell phones. This hurricane was much worse than people expected. Saida Maldonado, her husband Luis, and their kids are all holed up in the emergency room. The backup generator there has diesel, and it kicks on. And there's a power outlet where they can plug in Javier's ventilator. So at first, they're feeling okay. But over the next few days, things start to change. At the ER, Saida says food and water and medical supplies are starting to run low. The staff are having trouble finding more diesel to power the generator. People are panicking. Saida says it doesn't seem like the people in charge have a plan for what to do. I don't know how else to describe it, but just everything froze. Even though the roads are flooded, they decide that Luis, Saida's husband, should risk trying to drive home to get the supplies they need. Things like Javier's diapers and formula he eats. So Luis leaves in the morning. Saida, Javier, and her daughter stay put in the ER. And then, a few hours later, a nurse comes to Saida and says there's a problem. The ER has to shut down the generator. If they just leave it on, it'll overheat and blow out. You'll have to take your kids and leave now, the nurse tells Saida. They can't take care of Javier anymore. Saida says, no, I can't leave until my husband gets back. The nurse says there's no time. So... They don't have a choice. More after this break. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. All right, we are back. Remember, it's September 2017. And the thing that's happening to Saida Maldonado and her family is happening in hospitals all over Puerto Rico. Almost a week after the hurricane made landfall, FEMA said only 11 of 69 hospitals either had electricity or fuel for generators. 
Still, the government didn't seem to realize just how bad things were. The Secretary of Health does a radio interview and gets defensive when he's asked about it. He said it was not true that people were dying because of a lack of medical care. Plus, he said, people die in hospitals all the time. In the town of Barranquitas... In the emergency room where Saida Maldonado and her kids are staying, a nurse tells her that in two hours, they won't have power. Here's Tom again. So the staff at the ER scrambles to make a plan. They decide that an ambulance would come and transfer Javier and a second boy who's on a ventilator to another hospital. The other boy was eight years old, and he had muscular dystrophy. But when the ambulance arrives, the plan falls apart. Cuando llega la ambulancia... The paramedic says they need the ambulance to handle emergencies and that transferring patients from hospital to hospital is not an emergency. Saida thinks this has to be a mistake. What did you say? She basically cursed him out. The paramedic. And she said that that was irresponsible and that's not something that you do. And he said that he's just following orders and that's the order that he received. She doesn't know how in such a moment you could be so inhumane. In the end, even though she's terrified to go without her husband, Saida decides to drive herself and her two kids to the second hospital. They load up into Saida's car, and there's a special plug that connects Javier's ventilator to the engine. A police officer drives ahead of them. And the other boy on a ventilator, that eight-year-old with muscular dystrophy, he has to get his own ride, too. Another family lends the boy's family their car. This hospital is much bigger. So Saida expects it will be more prepared. After all, this is where they were told to go. Describe just what it looked like at the hospital in Aibonito. Aibonito era un caos. Un caos total. Total chaos. Gente gritando. Saida says there's people screaming, people with open wounds, people who are asking desperately for dialysis or for the regular chemotherapy drugs they need just to treat their cancer. On top of that, the hospital is understaffed. More than 100 hospital employees were dealing with the fact that their own homes were damaged or destroyed. This was such a problem that around this time, one hospital network actually puts out a message on Facebook to its employees. It says, we hope you're okay and the damage to your homes was minor. We're waiting for you. It's unclear how many people could even access Facebook to read a message like that. She was angry um, because she said, you know, you're a hospital, how are you not prepared? But this hospital does have the one thing Saida desperately needs right now. Electricity. Meanwhile, Luis, Saida's husband, has made it safely back to the family's home in Barranquitas. The roads were barely passable, but the house itself and their supplies are okay. He heads back to the first ER to tell his family the good news. But, of course, they're already gone. He eventually gets to the hospital where his family is, and they reunite. 
but the relief of being back together doesn't last long. For Javier, who has a weak immune system, a hospital is full of danger. It's a breeding ground for the sort of bacteria and viruses that could kill him. And after the hurricane, that danger escalated. Hospitals need working air conditioning to prevent the spread of germs, supplies to clean operating rooms, and staff to actually do that cleaning. In a lot of places, they had none of those things. Puerto Rico's Center for Investigative Journalism looked into the hospital deaths from septicemia, which is essentially blood poisoning from bacteria. They found that those deaths increased almost 50% after Hurricane Maria. After about five days in this hospital, Saida and Louise start to rethink their whole plan. At first, they listened to the government, and they went to the ER in their town. When the power failed there, they were sent to this hospital in Ibonito. But then that wasn't safe either. Someone tells them there's a government-run shelter they could go to next, but they hear it's dirty and overcrowded. So that's when they decide to just Nos vamos. go home. Nos vamos y que sea lo que Dios quiera. They do not have electricity there, but they do have a generator. So now the goal of every day is to find enough diesel to keep that generator running. And it's really hard. Before the hurricane, Luis worked as a chef, but now he can't find work. So they scrape by on donations from people on Facebook or their church. Luis shows a picture of Javier on his ventilator to this woman who owns a gas station, and she gives them free diesel and lets Luis go to the front of the long gas lines. Eventually, they get some money from FEMA, but Luis says it's not enough. The government keeps telling people to be patient, and power will be back soon. And this goes on for weeks. Through October... It's been one month since Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, and 80% of the island is still without power. There are many people here still without food, still without electricity, still without drinking water. Then November... It's been nearly two months now since the hurricane hit. About half the island remains without power. Half the island doesn't have power yet. December... Nearly three months after Hurricane Maria, one-third of Puerto Rico is still without power. Living through what is now the longest blackout in American history. Christmas, there's still no electricity. And all this time, even after cell service starts coming back on the island... Saida says they never get a phone call or visit from the health department to check in on Javier. She says they felt abandoned. And then it's February 2018, almost five full months after the hurricane. There's a problem with Javier's ventilator. It's really not made to run on a generator for so long. And the generator keeps causing the ventilator to short out. They actually have to get it replaced four times. And one night, around 3 in the morning, Luis is checking on the ventilator. Javier starts having convulsions, and then he stops breathing. Luis starts CPR. Minutes go by. Saida is so freaked out that she faints. Oh, my God. And so you were thinking, did you think he could pass away in that moment? Claro. Yeah. We're conscious of in any moment that could happen. Finally, Javier's lungs and heart start working again. He's alive. But Luis knows it could happen again at any time. And he's not sure Javier would survive. 
And that's when he basically said, I can't anymore with this. Luis goes to a radio station, and he asks to talk to the morning show host about Javier's story. And they put him on. The host says, so you've been without running water or electricity for more than 130 days? And Luis says, yeah. And then the host asks how Javier is doing. Luis says, Javier's stable. Thank God he's stable. But they need electricity, and they don't think they can wait much longer. The interview does actually get attention from the government. Finally, almost a month after that interview, a crew from a power company in Illinois helps fix the grid in their neighborhood. There's this video of the moment when Saida and Luis finally flip the circuit breaker on at the house. People from the power company are watching, and as soon as the lights come on, Saida covers her face with her hands and starts to cry. Saida says that if Luis had not gone to the radio station that day and told their story, she's convinced that right now, Javier would not be alive, like one of the thousands of people who died after Hurricane Maria. She tells me that the eight-year-old boy that they had traveled with from that first ER, the boy with muscular dystrophy, who was also on a ventilator, that boy died. They believe from an infection he got at the hospital. Hi, Tom. Hi, how are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you for making the time. I really To understand why so much went wrong in Javier's case, I called Omaya Sosa Pascual. She runs Puerto Rico's Center for Investigative Journalism. And ever since Hurricane Maria, she and her team have been trying to figure out why the Puerto Rican and federal governments were so unprepared for what happened. She says there are rules for hospitals to follow, to prepare for disasters. And the Puerto Rican government is supposed to enforce those rules. But she says, for the most part, it didn't. The government of Puerto Rico, through its Department of Health, was not inspecting hospitals as frequently as they should have. There were hospitals that had not been visited for eight years, for example. So um, that gives uh, you a sense that they were already in a questionable condition before Hurricane Maria struck. What was the government's rationale for not doing these inspections? Did they give you one? They have no personnel because uh, we are in a financial crisis and uh, they don't have enough uh, manpower to do it. Do you buy that reasoning? No, I don't. I really don't because they have money for other things. We are in a financial crisis, that's true. But priorities should be shuffled around and should be rethought. Omaya has been trying to get official reports of government inspections of hospitals and medical facilities from before the hurricane. And so far, the government has refused to make that information public. Another problem was that the information the government did put out was bad information. For example, about two weeks after the hurricane made landfall, Puerto Rico's governor said 63 out of 69 hospitals on the island were quote-unquote operational. But then Omaya and her team went to several of these operational hospitals, and they found the same thing that Saida and her family did. Total chaos. Many didn't have enough oxygen supplies. There were some hospitals that, that at some point were performing surgeries with flashlights. So that's one of the uh, worst mistakes the government made, in my view. They misled people 
and that was uh, fatal. Of course, the other bad information the Puerto Rican government put out was about how many people died. For months, they said the number was just 16, and then 64. And critics think that's why it took FEMA and other federal agencies a lot longer to respond to Maria than to other hurricanes. And then there's the electricity. Some of the problem was just Puerto Rico's decrepit power grid and the challenge of getting electricity to remote areas. But people who have worked on rebuilding other power grids say a lot of the problem was just incompetence. There were accusations of corruption. There was even a federal raid on a warehouse that was accused of hoarding reconstruction equipment. And so, Amaya says, when you look at all of this, it's clear that a lot of people who died because of Hurricane Maria did not have to. A very strong hurricane is always going to be bad. doesn't matter how well prepared you are. But, but that's okay for one day, for two days, maybe for a couple of days or a week. Most people that died did not die those first 72 hours. They died weeks and months after. That's not part of nature. That's part of the human uh, incompetence. President Trump has rejected any criticism. He said the federal government's response was a 10 out of 10. Puerto Rico's governor and its health department did not respond to our requests for comment. But in the past, the governor has said that he takes responsibility for his government's failures. Omaya Sosa Pascual says the Puerto Rican government has started to put together new disaster plans. And she says there are signs of progress in those plans. The government is also working with doctors on creating a database of families like Saida's so they're not left on their own next time. But at this point, Omaya does not think Puerto Rico is prepared for another hurricane like Maria. And the power grid now is just as vulnerable as it was before the storm. I got a small sense of what it's like to live with that uncertainty when I was on the phone with Saida Maldonado. It was raining in Puerto Rico, and all of a sudden, she had to hand the phone over to Luis. At first, I didn't realize what was going on. And then they tell me. The power just went out. Saida goes to check on Javier and make sure the generator's still set up. Does this happen a lot? She says, yeah. Because the system's still so weak. Hurricane Maria is not over for you yet. No, no, practically no. They're reliving it again. This episode was reported and produced by Tom Dreisbach with help from Isabeth Mendoza. It was edited by Lisa Pollock, Eric Menel, and me with help from Adrian Florido and Mark Mehmet. Fact-checking was by Greta Pittenger. Our lawyer is Ashley Messenger. Big thanks to all the doctors we talked to. Srini Zinzawadia, Antonio Daher, Yasmin Pedrogo, Marta Suarez, Paul Bittinger, and Mashid Abir. Also thanks to Carrie Ann Rivera, Mili Bonilla, Omaya Sosa Pascual, Ana Campoy, Erica Rodriguez, and Ezekiel Rodriguez-Andino. Our theme music is by Colin Wamsgans. Other original music is by Ramtin Arablui. And by the way, Ramtin is the co-host of a brand new NPR podcast called Throughline. Check that out. And while you're at it, if you listen to us on iTunes, make sure to leave us a review. You can holler at us on Twitter at NPR Embedded. You can also send tips or story ideas. Email us at embedded at npr.org. 
like I said, we'll be back soon with more. Thanks for listening. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.